Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would meet us in our various needs today. Each one of us comes here with different types of weeks behind us, some with sick family members, some of us having battled illness. Lord, some just praising you because things are going better. In a variety of ways, your children come here to worship you. In fact, for some of us, it might even be hard to think about worshiping because life is hard right now. Whatever the case, however we present ourselves this morning, I pray that you would be here with us. Lord, we know you are. Help us feel the reality of the truth that you never leave nor forsake your children. I pray for the various needs this morning. I pray for Carol and John as they mourn the passing of Carol's father. Lord, I thank you that he was a believer, that he knows you, that they have the hope that he is in heaven. I also pray for our sister Shirley, who is still out, who's still uh, recovering from illness. I pray that you would heal her body and that she would be restored to us. And I thank you that our sister LaRue's here, Lord. Praying for her last week and then seeing her here with your people where I know she wants to be is just a praise to you for your healing power. Lord, we ask that this morning we would be able to focus on your word, that as we study your word and it hits our ears, that it would penetrate our hearts so that we could live out the truths that we believe. We love you, Lord. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we turn our focus back to the scriptures this morning, go ahead and open your Bibles. If you're not already to 1 Peter chapter 2, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to start really today just introducing verses 21 to 25. Verses 21 to 25, you can look in your English Bibles, those are the last verses of chapter 2, and we're on the doorstep, if you're married, just be forewarned, we're on the doorstep of chapter 3, which starts talking to wives and husbands, and I'm looking forward to that opportunity for us all to learn and grow in that regard. But as we come to the end of chapter 2, we really are going to be dealing with Central motivational truths for everything else in the book. And in fact, they're explanatory of what's already passed. They're the explanation for how we're to do what's coming next. And as I began to study, I had told you last week I was really looking forward to this. I think it's going to take us several weeks to get through these verses 21 to 25. Now, again, as a little bit of a backdrop as I did a little more introduction last week and we covered verses 18 to 20. This is a section of 1 Peter that really is practical application of theological truth. Now we know that all of scripture is given to us to help us live godly lives. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, two of the first verses I learned as a new believer, all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. We believe that and teach that about every aspect of the Bible. But there are some parts of scripture where that's a little bit hard to figure out. I know for me, it's the sort of the graveyard of yearly Bible reading when you get into the genealogies of the Old Testament or the sacrifices and they're stitching together the purple yarn and this and that. And you go, okay, Lord, I know this is for my edification and reproof, but sometimes it's hard to find it. 
That's not the case where we are in Scripture. In fact, I don't know of anything more foundational, more profitable, more helpful to help us deal with life's difficulties than the text that we're introducing this morning and that we're going to touch on over the next few weeks. This is application of truth to daily lives in ways that we don't necessarily always want to hear. But nonetheless, what we are seeing is truth that tells believers how to live out their faith in a hostile and sinful world. And I don't need to explain to you that we live in a hostile and sinful world. It's fascinating the explosion on the news of story after story of people who are caught in their transgressions, and I don't rejoice over that. In fact, let me caution you. If you get excited when politicians get caught, do what I do and repent. Because we realize we're capable of everything they're doing. We're not in a separate category. What we see, though, is sin exposed for what it really is. The duplicity and the deceit that we can be guilty of is just plastered all over the news. This world is wicked and our values, the values of Scripture, are not acknowledged by anyone. Fascinating. We have an epidemic of sin all around us. We label it sin because that's what it is. And nobody says, hey, maybe we should address this with the Scriptures. Yes, we need more training. We need more sensitivity. We need... No, the, the fact remains, these are hard issues. So as we deal with this, we're really dealing more specifically with how do we, as children of God, deal with the injustices of this world. And the key for dealing with those injustices is a word that I know for me it's hard to hear, but it's a word that we've seen beginning in verse 13, and then we saw it again in verse 18 last week, We'll see it again in the context of chapter 3. In various forms, the word is submit. Submission. In verses 13 to 17, what did we study over a period of time? I did a Q&A on it. Submission to the government. Which isn't easy when we have a wicked government. And what you realize in America, it's not that the government's wicked, it's just that we have to staff the government with people. <laughs> and they're wicked. You know, the pieces of paper aren't what make the government wicked. It's the hearts that execute the pieces of paper that cause our problems. And yet, except when the government tells us to sin, in which case we say with respect no and we take our punishment, we're not supposed to be in rebellion. We're not supposed to be leading the charge to overthrow the government. Now, according to Peter, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit... We're supposed to submit ourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whatever level of government. That's hard. But then last week, we saw that that duty of submission extends into the workplace. Again, I alluded to the fact that that's almost anti-American because one of the God-given rights is to go to work and complain about your job and to complain about the unfairness of your boss. There's two or three employees in America that have a good boss, but everybody else is complaining about theirs. Can you believe they couldn't decide their way out of a wet paper sack? They don't know how to go here. They don't know how, how are we still in business? Because they are incompetent boobs, and we're going to tell everybody about it. And they're fools, and they don't know what they're doing. 
On and on it goes. And yet what we saw in the scriptures, originally in a context of actual slaves and actual masters, but as I explained in more detail last week than I can review again today, it has applicability to us in our employment context. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. It's not even just the outward doing what you've been told to do. It's the inward attitude that says you're not supposed to be doing it with a clenched fist. Spitting behind their back in their footsteps. Smiling to their face and then grumbling as soon as they turn the corner. In fact, because it's so foundational to what we're talking about this morning as I introduce this next section, I'm going to read what we covered last week. Servants, verse 18. Be submissive to your masters with all respect. Not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if, for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. I mean, the scriptures are clear. Submission to your employer is not optional. You have to do it. It's not conditional. Well, you do it if you have a good boss. No, he's making it clear. Look, praise the Lord if you're one of those two or three people with a good boss. But it doesn't matter. Even if your boss is unreasonable, and that unreasonable word as it's translated in the version that I used in New American, I think is a little bit mild. It means morally perverse, crooked. I think everything you could think of in a stereotypical bad boss of somebody who's yelling, who's dishonest, who's stealing credit, who's shifting blame, who's unreasonable, who's making unreasonable demands, it all is wrapped up in that word. And again, it's not just the outward appearance, the outward actions. It's from the heart with all respect. We're supposed to endure unjust actions in the workplace. In fact, if we do it, not because we deserve it. If we deserve it, we don't get a pat on the back. We just deserved it. Sometimes Christians are bad employees. Sometimes we don't do what we should do. If we get punished at work, that's not martyrdom. That's just our just desserts. But if we've done the right thing, and yet we still suffered for it, what Peter is telling us is not only that's what you're supposed to do, but God is paying attention. That finds God's favor. One day you're going to get a well-done, good and faithful servant. Now that's a very brief summary of what I taught last week, and it's very important foundationally for what we're about to address, but it occurred to me, as it often does, I think through what I've said I wanted to clarify something, something that was left unsaid. And since, as I shared with you last week, my legal career was in employment law, it was something I thought of and I thought, oh, maybe somebody had this question. So if nobody had this question, humor me and smile and nod and say, that's it. I don't want to mess up things. I didn't teach error. And I don't want to open up a can of worms, although I risk doing it. But I want to make sure that you understand something. I believe with all my heart, verses 18 to 20 tell us to submit even to very bad employers, very bad bosses. I believe that. I believe we have to do that. And as the text is introduced today, we're going to see that's part of God's plan for his children. But I want to be clear that in most organizations, there's a little caveat. It's not a exception. It's just something that 
submission looks like. Most organizations have internal policies that prohibit certain conduct. And they say if you're subjected to certain conduct, you can file a complaint with HR, and HR can investigate it and do things. Likewise, we live in a system of laws. I'm not telling you something you don't know. There are laws on the books prohibiting discrimination on the basis of sex or religion or your ethnicity or your race or any of those things. And there are government agencies, for example, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, that there are procedures in place where an individual who's been aggrieved can file a complaint and they'll investigate it. I don't believe if you follow your company's internal policy and and make them aware of conduct or if you make the government aware of conduct that you're being unsubmissive. I I believe because you're also submitting to the authority that's over them, that's an okay thing to do. Now, you don't do it, and I'm not on Facebook, so I don't know how to do this, but you don't do it saying to all of your 7,000 friends, I just filed a complaint today because they're all crooks and they're all whatever. No. No. But if there's an internal policy in place that says an employee, here's the rules for you, you can report this behavior, that's not being unsubmissive. That's just complying with the rules of your organization. In fact, complying with the rules of the organization for dealing with those kind of things, to me, is submissive. So I didn't want anybody to think, okay, I'm being subjected to illegal behavior, my company has a policy, but if I complain about it, I'm disobeying the Lord. I don't think you are. So so let me be clear of that. The legal recourses that God has put in place include protection from evildoers, and that often in a company includes internal policies or government procedures. So just lest anybody think that they're being unsubmissive by following their company's rules or the government rules, I don't believe that at all. In fact, if you see illegal behavior, I would tell you in a lot of other contexts, including in a marital relationship, you know, if your spouse commits a crime against you, call the police. God puts government in place to punish evildoers. We talked about that. So there's some nuances here. But most of us, by and large, are dealing with people we would classify as jerks, not criminals. And quite often people are just unreasonable and they're asking you to do things that aren't fair. It's not a criminal issue. Quite often what's happening to us and what we face is just lack of human compassion, not criminal behavior such that there's legal recourse. Most sinful wicked behavior isn't illegal. I investigated complaints for 10 years for a variety of employers. Most of the time, I didn't find anything illegal. Now, most investigations, I found sin. But as of yet, most sin's not punishable under the law. So, quite often, I think what we're dealing with and what Peter would be calling you to deal with is how do you deal with a boss who's just a jerk? Or they lie. Or they shift blame, or they have a really, really big ego, or they are immoral away from work. All those times are where we have to submit. All those times are where we have to realize that even though we're treated harshly, we just have to endure it. Still submitting with all respect. And I didn't get to them last week, but I want to be clear. Sometimes there's something taught in one place in Scripture and we can think, well, maybe there's a nuance. I'm going to show you that this is not debatable. 
you can write down these references. If you look up electronically, you can go fast. Colossians 3, 22 to 24. Colossians 3, 22 to 24. This is the Apostle Paul talking to a church. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth. Not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. There's the perfect explanation for how you go to work every day. There's your life motto if you're an employee. But it's not just there. Ephesians 6, 5 to 8. It's going to sound very familiar to what I just read in Colossians. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. With good will render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. First Timothy six, one to two. First Timothy six, one to two. All who are under the yoke of slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved, teach and preach these principles. I stated it last week, I'll say it this week. Christians should be the best employees there are. Period. And if you work for believers, it shouldn't make you lazy because, hey, they'll give me some slack. No, it should make you work even harder. But what you see over and over is that even our employment is as unto the Lord. In fact, our employment and how we act in the workplace is evangelistic. Maybe... Somebody will see good things and ask us, but at the very least, if they know you're a Christian and they see you are a bad employee, it's going to be evangelistic, but for all the wrong reasons. If that's what Christ does, I don't need that. Now, here's the challenge. Is it possible? Can we really do all these things in a bad job? Being respectful and serving horrible employers. They don't care a thing for me. I'm supposed to care for them. I'm supposed to give them 100%. Again, it's not just about what they see. It's about the Lord we serve. But can we endure being treated badly without losing our temper? Without retaliating? Without mouthing off? Without cussing out or telling off the abuser? Without gossiping or undermining the authority of our boss? Can we live what Paul taught in Romans 12... Verses 17 to 19. Romans 12, verses 17 to 19. This applies in every aspect of life, including marriage, but it applies to the workplace. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
Let me assure you, as hard as it is, and it is hard, it is possible. And the reason it's possible is because of what we're introducing today. The way it's possible to submit and endure injustice and mistreatment is because of what we see in 1 Peter 2, verses 21 to 25. Follow along with me. I'm going to read that entire section. We're really only going to introduce this today. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose. Actually, let me go back. I'm going to go back to verse 18. I'm going to read this whole section together because this is how it flows. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and charitable, but also to those who are unreasonable, for this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly, for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience, but if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return, while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. This is the key. This is it. This is where I come to and I'm going to tell you this is key truth. What you're going to see later is I'm going to tell you this is key truth for your marriage as well. But it's key truth for submitting to the government. It's key truth for submitting in the workplace. So I have an outline that I may change but for right now it's four truths for enduring injustice with godliness. It's four truths for enduring injustice with godliness. And that's important because unbelievers get treated unjustly and some of them endure it. That's not our goal is to teach you how to be tough enough to hang in there. Our goal is to teach you how to honor the Lord. That's what we all need, including me. So the first truth, and this is really all we're going to cover this morning is this God's children are called to suffer God's children are called to suffer verse 21 the first part of it call it 21a for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you I mean, this is the connection between what's talking before. Because while this has a broader application, and we'll see, this is really the anchor for a good marriage. We're going to see that in chapter 3. But this really is directly related to what he's telling servants to do. 
to submit even in unjust circumstances. Even if you've got a horrible master, you submit. And he makes the incredible statement, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you. It's one of those times, and we don't understand all of the mysteries of life, but this is one of those times where God answered a why. If you have worked at a place with a bad boss, it's a bad employer, they pay your check, but it's a hard place to work and you're falsely accused and all those types of things, and it's hard to go to work and yet you do it anyway, God provides one of the reasons why. You've been called for this purpose. Again, we don't know even all the details on a day-to-day basis. Why today am I the target of the boss's wrath? Some of you work in a workplace or you've either worked in workplaces. It's kind of like the old shooting gallery. You don't know which target is today, but oh, it's my day. Ting, 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 and he's putting bullets in my head. Figuratively, not literally. There were old shit. Never mind. Um, thanks. In this first instance, he's saying this is part of our calling. Now, it's interesting. Peter's already made it clear that we are called by God. In 1 Peter 2, 9, he said, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness... Into his marvelous light. That describes what occurred. We were called out of our wicked, sinful life and brought into God's kingdom. Part of why I'm excited about teaching this whole section is we're going to be dealing deeply with the gospel. Because this calling is explained even more and the full scope of the atonement and what Christ did for us is all on display here. But Peter says that those whom God has called are called in part to suffer injustice, to sometimes be treated badly and unfairly. It makes you say, what? Wait, huh? Really? Is that what it says? It says that. Unfortunately, a lot of people are preaching a gospel that is not accurate. They're trying to tell you that if you come to Christ, everything's good. I wish I'd never heard people say that. You've probably heard people say that. And there's one sense in which it is good. Because we are children of God. And I could go through the promises of Scripture for what that does for us. And we could just stay and rejoice all day long. And into the week. And on Thanksgiving, I hope most of us are thinking about those things, not just turkey. But it's wrong to think that the gospel is a get-out-of-jail-free card for life. And I know from the prayer request and the tears we've shed together that you know better. But sadly, there are some people that say, Hey, if you come to Christ, everything's good. There's no more issues. That's the heresy of a health and wealth and prosperity. Sometimes God makes people healthy, sometimes not. Sometimes people are prosperous, sometimes Christians are poor. Sometimes there are happy days in the Christian life, sometimes we're covered in tears. Here's the issue. Our 
theology, our understanding of truth tells us that we're just passing through here. We've already talked about that. We're not really citizens here. And ultimately, we will be healthy. God's going to give us new bodies one day. Praise the Lord for that. I can't wait. One day, there's going to be no more tears, no more death, no more dying. Praise the Lord for that day. I can't wait. One day, I'm not going to have to struggle against sin anymore, and neither are you, because we're going to be standing before the Lord, and that won't be an issue. I really can't wait for that. But until that day, we're here. God doesn't just lift us out of our circumstances. God saves us in our circumstances. And what we have to be careful is not letting a worldly mindset afflict our view of what's going on around us. Because one of the purposes of our calling is at times to suffer and to be an example in that suffering. And to suffer with patience. And to suffer when everybody else says, what are you thinking? And to endure when everybody else says, you ought to cut your losses and run. I think what Peter is telling us, we've been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered. He's telling us that in the broader context, God is sovereign over everything. We know that, but it's supposed to comfort us in the midst of injustice. Every moment of your life, including every bad day at work, goes through your loving Heavenly Father's hands. It's a part of His plan. And part of His plan for each of His children at times is to have us endure suffering like Christ did so that... Our faith can be proved genuine so that we can honor the Lord by our obedience, so that we can show that we have faith even when our sight tells us things are gone haywire. What happened to Jesus is the explanation for what often is happening to us. For you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you. I'm excited to get into Jesus' suffering, even though it's painful from a personal standpoint, because I realize it was my sin that caused him to suffer. I can't think of that in the abstract. I think of it of me, and I have pictures in my mind of what was driving the nails. But I think the overarching point that Peter is trying to make ties into a theological truth that Jesus gave us. In John chapter 15, verses 18 to 20, you can write down the reference. John chapter 15, verses 18 to 20, these are the words of Jesus. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Jesus made it clear up front. You're not going to be the friend of the world. I could 
get off on a side road of some theological things, but I think a grave error that the evangelical church in America made going back into at least the 1940s, although its roots were probably even into the 20s and 30s, is they wanted the world to like them. And they wanted the world to respect them. So evangelical scholarship changed. They wanted the world to say, hey, they're just as smart as we are. Guess what? As long as you believe what the scriptures say, you're thought a fool. Period. And what you see over decades and generations of evangelical scholarship is it has turned into worldly scholarship. The world never turned. If you want acceptance in academia, you have to be like them. And that's worldly. I'm not saying there aren't godly Christian scholars. Praise the Lord for them. There are many, and there are many godly Christian scholars who are holding their own in hostile environments, and I praise the Lord for them. They're the exception, not the rule. By and large, you can't study the Scripture with the hope that the world will like what you find, because the world never will. Same way in the workplace. If you're honest when other people are cheating, nobody's going to pat you on the back. They're going to be upset because you make them feel guilty. If you're putting in a hard day's work when other people are lazy, all they're going to do is resent you because you make them look bad. On and on it goes. Again, being a Christian isn't a get-out-of-jail-free card, borrowing the monopoly analogy. It's a ticket to pain and suffering. And if you haven't experienced it yet, you just praise the Lord because your time will come. The Apostle Paul gave a similar warning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. You could read verses 1 to 4, but he's explaining why he sent Timothy, beginning in verse 2. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. So why are all these warnings there? Because believers are supposed to have our eyes open. It's a hard world. And sometimes that carries over into the workplace. And sometimes we're in a rotten environment. And in those times, we suffer anyway. But we do it with all respect and we submit. Because Jesus suffered, we suffer sometimes. The calling of Christ is to a life of hardship. We've been blessed because for the most part in America, people leave us alone. They really do. In fact, so many people claim to be Christian that aren't, that you can get by with a lot of Christian things. You can pray over your food, nobody cares. I worked at a secular employer, a public agency in California, the liberal place, and at public events... Sponsored by a public entity, people prayed in the name of Jesus. Does that mean they were godly? Of course not. The point is, you can get by in America sometimes anyway. Maybe you're not treated as badly as in some other countries. But you already see the ground shifting under our feet. And if you haven't experienced, you may experience it more. And the call of God on your life is in those circumstances, you suffer like Christ did. You submit like Christ did. Again, we're going to get into that, and we're going to dig deeper, and we're going to see what Christ did. We're going to see his example. There's four negative things that Christ did. There's one positive things that Christ did. And again, if you're married, be excited, because this is the foundation for marriage.
But let me give you some encouraging news because my point today doesn't particularly sound encouraging. If you're a believer, you're called to suffer. Well, that's a good truth, Joe. Thank you for... <laughs> really makes me feel good for Thanksgiving. Um, what a happy thought. God's children are called to suffer. Here's something that should encourage you. In the midst of the suffering, it's evidence that God's at work in you. James 1-2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have a perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, the way that you mature and become a mature believer, which we all want to be in part, is by the trials of life. And Romans 8.28 can be a cliche, but it's not a cliche. It's a promise. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Ultimately culminating in verse 30, that one day we're going to be glorified. And we already covered it in 1 Peter. He's writing to believers who are struggling. Verse 6 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, God's at work in the hard times. God refines us through the trials. In fact, if you've never had a trial as a believer, well, you can praise the Lord, but also you ought to make sure of your calling. You know some people have less troubles than others, but every believer is going to have some trouble. And in those moments, the call is not how do I tough it out. The call is how do I depend on the Lord. That's what's beautiful. Looking ahead... Christ entrusted himself to God the Father and trusted him. That's what we're going to do as well. Let me close our time today and I look forward to digging into this text over the next few weeks. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your truth. And I thank you, Lord, for our sufferings. Lord, I know in my own heart when I've gone through periods of trials and suffering, at times all I've done is beg you to take me out of it. But I know, Lord, that learning to walk in trials is what strengthens our faith. Lord, the fact that you leave us in circumstances, even when we plead that you would remove us from them, isn't evidence of your lack of care, but it's evidence that you know what we need more than we do. Lord, at times we're like little kids that don't want to take our medicine parents can tell us it will make us better but all we know is it tastes bad and we don't want it Lord sometimes the trials of life are that way for us you love us you're our loving heavenly father you never leave us nor forsake us but sometimes what's good for us we don't even understand so I pray for brothers and sisters who may be dealing with hardships at work Lord give them grace give them the ability to patiently endure hardships 
And Lord, I pray for each one of us that you will instill in our hearts a submissive attitude to the government, to our employers, in our marriages, in our relationships, Lord, that we would put others' interests above our own. And Lord, for those brothers and sisters suffering patiently, I pray that their suffering would be a gospel witness, perhaps even to the unreasonable bosses that are treating them badly. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.